Hello, this is Eli Lake, and you are listening to The Re-Education. The topic is sociopaths and the media they consume. Our guest this week is Batya Unger-Sargon, the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, and the Deputy Opinion Editor at Newsweek Magazine. As the nation learned over the weekend, a sociopath named Peyton Gendron went on a killing spree at the Topps Market in Buffalo, New York. He traveled 200 miles to kill black people because he was, by his own admission, a racist. This is 18-year-old Peyton Gendron making his first court appearance, now facing multiple murder charges. Gendron surrendered to authorities moments after committing the deadly massacre at this top supermarket in Buffalo. This event was committed by a sick, demented individual who has fueled a daily diet of hate. At 2.30 Saturday afternoon, the 18-year-old from Conklin, New York, pulled up to the store and began firing on customers and employees. Investigators say Gendron had scouted out the layout of the store in advance. Dressed in tactical camo, armed with an AR-15 rifle with an illegally extended magazine, he shot four people outside the store, killing three. We know that Gendron is a racist because of a manifesto that he posted before his mass murder on Google Docs. It's a rambling screed, as one might expect. He warns of what he says is a white genocide, spurred by low birth rates and unrestricted immigration. He thinks crypto is a scam and despises Jews and George Soros. These ravings reveal a sick and hateful mind. For a certain kind of progressive activist, Gendron is only one person with blood on his hands for the massacre in Buffalo. Another culprit is Fox News, and particularly... Tucker Carlson's primetime show. Here's a tweet from a group called Sleeping Giants, which wages pressure campaigns against conservative media. Those of us who have been trying to hold outlets like Fox accountable knew this was the outcome of their rhetoric and have been at this for years, they said. Media Matters, which also exists to boycott and pressure conservative media, said Gendron's mass shooting should be a decision point for advertisers on Fox News. Here's CNN's Jim Acosta. When the New York Times recently ran an expose on Carlson's record of promoting white nationalism and replacement theory, he tweeted out this, a picture of himself holding up the article, the front page of the New York Times, and laughing about it. Uh, Derek, as you know, millions of people absorb this garbage on a regular basis on his program. Fox does nothing about it. Uh, They make millions of dollars off of it. We have not shied away from calling that out uh, and calling Tucker out on this program because what he is doing is very dangerous. At issue is something known as the Great Replacement Theory. This was the title of a self-published book by French racist crank Renaud Camus in 2011. He concludes not only that immigrants are reshaping the demographics, politics, and culture of Western nations, but that this is a deliberate scheme from global elites, i.e. Jews. This theory has become popular with racists, neo-Nazis, and other dirtbags in the last decade. It's animated terror attacks in New Zealand, Norway, and sadly, right here in America. The New York Times is worried that this garbage is becoming mainstream. The theory, they write, once confined to the digital fever swamps of Reddit message boards and semi-obscure white nationalist sites, has gone mainstream. 
in sometimes more muted forms the fear it crystallizes of a future America in which white people are no longer the numerical majority has become a potent force in conservative media and politics, where the theory has been borrowed and remixed to attract audiences, retweets, and small-dollar donations. Here's Tucker Carlson talking about replacement theory on his show in 2021. I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's, that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Now, it's important here to offer some context. First, Gendron does not mention Tucker Carlson at all in his manifesto. He actually lambasts Fox News for being run by a Jewish cabal. He says he was radicalized on internet forums like 4chan during the quarantine. He cites repeatedly the ravings of Brenton Tarrant, the monster who live-streamed his murder spree in 2019 at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. As for his actual politics... Gendron says he's a fascist and explicitly rejects the label of conservative. Cynthia Miller Idris, a professor at American University who studies online radicalization, told the Washington Post, We know that there's tremendous mainstreaming of the great replacement narrative by politicians and cable news pundits like Tucker Carlson. It's really dangerous. And at the same time, there's every indication so far that his exposure came through anonymous online spaces and not necessarily through mainstream media, end of quote. Is it really true that Tucker Carlson is popularizing this racist and anti-Semitic nonsense? Or is he just making a strident and conspiratorial argument about immigration? On the one hand, like Camus and Tarrant, Carlson does speak of immigrants replacing citizens. He has also said that this is part of a scheme by Democrats and progressives to import, quote, obedient voters, end quote. But Carlson has never linked this to racial purity, nor has he blamed Jews. When he speaks about replacement, he's speaking about Americans. When Tarrant and Gendron speak about replacement, they mean whites. Progressives might say Carlson is dog-whistling. He's signaling to racists, that he's on their side without explicitly endorsing their full agenda. As the New York Times wrote, in recent months, versions of the same ideas sanded down and shorn explicitly of anti-black and anti-Semitic themes have become commonplace in the Republican Party. But this description obscures more than it illuminates. Tucker Carlson is talking about something that is grounded at least in part in reality. White men without college degrees voted in the majority for Donald Trump in 2020 and 2016. Their numbers are shrinking. Meanwhile, other demographic groups are emerging as a larger part of the electorate. Here's a video from 2016 from The Atlantic, hardly a bastion of conservative or MAGA thinking, making this exact point. The remarkable truth is this. America is no longer a white Christian country. And that's going to have profound implications. In the early 1990s, fewer than one in 10 Americans said that they were religiously unaffiliated. That number today is nearly a quarter. It's 23%. 
About two-thirds of seniors identify as white and Christian. But if we go down to the youngest Americans, those under the age of 30, only 29% of that group identifies as white and Christian. Today, we have zero Protestants on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. And if Merrick Garland is confirmed, we will have five Catholics and four Jews. The 2012 election with Romney versus Obama is a good illustration of just how quickly the power of white Christian America has declined. Romney actually did pretty well among white evangelical voters. He hit all his basic marks that his campaign should have hit. If he had run the same campaign he ran and got the same kinds of support he got uh, in 2004, he would have won. Uh, but what had changed between 2004 and 2012 was that the religious and racial landscape had shifted just enough that it wasn't enough to put him over the top. Now, obviously, we're seeing Donald Trump running with this playbook. We may have a real test case on our hands about whether or not uh, there are, in fact, enough white Christian voters out there uh, for a Republican candidate to win relying on those super majorities. Now, Tucker Carlson, we should say, does not account for other reasons why Democrats would support amnesty for those here illegally. They include a vision of America that is enriched by those striving for a better life, or simply recoiling at the humanitarian horror entailed in sending agents to round up and deport millions of people who live here. What's more, as recent voting trends have indicated, a Democratic Party that embraces radical notions of gender and policing is being rejected by many Black and Hispanic Americans. It's no guarantee that new Americans in this country will vote for Democrats if they continue down this path. The idea that our current immigration crisis can only be explained as a deliberate plot to ensure permanent majorities for the Democratic Party, well, that is a conspiracy theory. Even so, why would it matter if Peyton Gendron had said in his manifesto that he was driven to kill because of Tucker Carlson? Whatever one wants to say about Tucker Carlson or other right-wing television personalities, none of them tell their viewers to commit acts of violence. America is a really big country, and sociopaths read books, participate in online forums, they watch television too. If we held authors, pundits, and shitposters accountable for the deeds of every mental patient who read them, our discourse would barely exist. Just apply this argument with some consistency to see how it fails. Because the right does not have a monopoly on mass shooters. Remember James T. Hodginson, the Bernie Sanders supporter and Rachel Maddow superfan who shot up a congressional baseball practice in 2017, gravely wounding Representative Steve Scalise? Before opening fire, Hodginson asked if the congressmen practicing that day were Republicans. Later on, his social media revealed him to be a hyper-partisan who considered members of the GOP to be traitors, a pretty regular theme for Rachel Maddow during the Trump years. This problem is not just limited to our politics. Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore. A man who stood up against the scum, the cunts, the dogs, the filth, the shit. Here is someone who stood up. That was a clip from Martin Scorsese's brilliant 1976 film, Taxi Driver. Robert De Niro, who you hear in the clip, plays a loser named Travis Bickle, who becomes a vigilante 
to save a teenage prostitute, played by Jodie Foster. In 1981, John Hinckley attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan, claiming he was obsessed and inspired by Bickle's character in the film. Indeed, his lawyers, in their defense of Hinckley, who ended up, by the way, avoiding prison because he was insane, said he was literally obsessed with the movie, writing Jodie Foster letters, reading the book that it was based on, over and over again. No one would ever blame Scorsese for Hinckley's attempted assassination of President Reagan, just as no one blamed Bernie Sanders or Rachel Maddow for the actions of Hodgkinson. So why have so many progressives sought to blame Tucker Carlson for Gendron's deeds? Much of this is because in the last few years, progressives have given up on debate and persuasion and instead sought to regulate or ban the speech of their opponents. The murders in Buffalo feed a seductive narrative that the line between speech and violence is murkier than we once believed. Tucker Carlson isn't just wrong, he's dangerous. But the line between speech and violence is not murky, or at least it shouldn't be. Individuals are responsible for their actions, not the authors of the books they read or the television hosts they watch. Because once we start blaming the speech for the crimes of those who consume it, we are giving sociopaths and criminals a veto over our discourse, a prospect far more dangerous than anything Tucker Carlson has to say. Well, right now we are delighted to have Bacha Unger-Sargat, who is the author of uh, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, and the Deputy Opinion Editor at Newsweek Magazine, where I used to work many years ago. Bacha, thanks so much for coming on The Reeducation. Thank you so much for having me. It's really such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, this that's, that's very cool. So we're we're going to talk today about the terrible news over the weekend. Someone by the name of Peyton Gendron traveled to the Topps Market in Buffalo, New York to murder Black people. And it's an, obviously a, a terrible tragedy. The emotions are still very raw. But what we saw almost immediately after this hit social media were a number of people, progressive activists, but also journalists, who blamed it on Fox News and particularly Tucker Carlson for something called the Great Replacement Theory. So if you could, Bacha, what do you sort of make of this, that we sort of have this awful incident before we know much of what's going on, we sort of have an, there's a narrative that begins to form. You know, it's such a solemn time in the wake of this tragedy and such an important topic, the question of responsibility, the question of prevention. I think um, in the wake of something so horrific, the instinct is to find someone to blame because that gives you the illusion that you can prevent it next time. So I want to start by saying I, I think that that impulse, however misguided, I think it comes from real pain. And I think that the, the nation right now is in mourning for these individuals who were just murdered because of their race. And, you know, especially with our history, events like this are uh, just deeply, deeply horrifying. And even the people I'm going to criticize 
things. I don't want to do so in a way that deprives them of the humanity that caused them to make this category error that I think you're pointing to, or that what I would interpret as a category error. So, so what is that category error? Yeah. So the killer, the alleged killer, cited the great replacement theory in his manifesto. The great replacement theory is an anti-Semitic canard that alleges that Jews are trying to import black and brown immigrants to replace white native-born Americans, French people, wherever the theory is being used, in an attempt to dilute the power of the white race because Jews are inherently the enemies of whites. That's that's the theory in a nutshell. It's racist and it's deeply anti-Semitic. The view is that, you know, they look around and they see, you know, Black success, Hispanic success, and they think, well, we're so much better than them. How come we are not succeeding? The Jews must be behind this, right? It's a really ugly conspiracy theory. That is what the shooter believed. <laughs> and that is why he committed this heinous and horrific act. Other shooters have believed this as well. Christchurch, for example, the, the Apostle uh, mass shooting. And he was very much inspired by them and, and cited them approvingly. There's another worldview, another point of view that has become increasingly mainstream on the right in the post-Trump era that is about immigration as well, and that also uses the word replacement. And that is the view that the Democrats are increasingly pro-immigrant and pro-open borders because they believe that immigrants Hispanic immigrants, Black immigrants will naturally be Democrats. And so the more immigration we have, the better they will be able to secure a Democratic majority. Now, this is a view that Democrats themselves used to admit to. They used to talk about the coming Democratic majority. I have personally had people, you know, in Democratic politics quite high up say to me, well, obviously, we think that, right? Obviously, that's kind of something that people think. And, and so increasingly, you're seeing the, the post-Trump right, which is much less free trade oriented and much more oriented around economic nationalism, as Steve Bannon called it, pick up this criticism of the left as diluting the power of Americans of all races <laughs> who's, who's who they say their vo votes are being diluted by this attempt to bring in mass immigration. Now, whether or not it's true that this is sort of behind the Democrats' reversal on immigration, I don't know. Some Democrats think it is. Some Democrats probably would not admit that it is. But to say that this is the same as the great replacement theory is to make a category error that replaces the difference between citizen and non-citizen with the difference between white versus person of color. And that is certainly a category error that the left has become totally mired in that is is, is actually deeply problematic, not least because the Black community are the ones who are paying the most for mass immigration, that they are the part of the Democratic Party that is least likely to say that diversity and immigration are our strengths. And they have literally paid 
you know, in wages, in real wages for mass immigration. And so to me, the category error of saying that if you care about the difference between a citizen and a non-citizen, if you believe that we should be taking care of our people first of all races, that that is racist. To me, that is actually a way of depriving the community that most needs political power, which is the black community, of any hope of getting it because the people who are supposed to be on the side of amplifying their power are actually weakening it by taking the charge of racism and applying it to the national border. So that that's what, what I meant by that category, Aaron, how I think it's, it's very problematic. Well, let me ask you a, a few things here. So what would you say? I'm going to try to steal, man, because I, I, I tend to agree with you. I just wrote my monologue on this and I come, come at a similar. But what would you say to somebody who said, OK, you know, Tucker Carlson is really careful. He doesn't use explicitly racial language or anti-Semitic language in when he talks about this issue. But it's what some people would call a dog whistle. And to, that is to say that there are people who, for many, many decades now, have been on the margins of um, polite society and acceptable discourse. And they see in Tucker Carlson somebody who they identify as kind of being on their side. So he's dog whistling. He is talking about something and they know what it means, even if he is not explicitly saying those words. What would you say to that criticism of Tucker Carlson or others who are kind of using this rhetoric of replacement and not tying it to an explicit racial notion? It's a really interesting question and a really important one. I would say this, you know, <laughs> when you take an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, right, the idea that powerful Jews are, you know, secretly controlling the strings, puppet mastering, what, what have you, you know, undermining the interests and the needs of the native born in order to, to accrue power, you know, if you took the Jews out of that, right, and you said, you know, our corporate overlords have right. accrued immense power, and they are using it to undermine the interests of the working class and to accrue, you know, it, you know, tons of money, you know, just immeasurable wealth and to impoverish, you know, working the people who work for them. You know, that's not only no longer an anti-Semitic claim, it's actually true, right? The thing that made... Uh, you, you say that's true, but we can disagree on that, but okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair <laughs> right, right. But you All would right. grant to me that that's not anti-Semitic, right? And I yes. think that, that there's something happening here to where, you know, like there's a sort of grammar of explanation, right? And at some point you overgeneralize to the point where, you know, if you're saying this is like anti-Semites, this is like, well, sure, at some level, everything is like everything else, right? The Nazis had breakfast every morning, I assume. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, but, Hitler was right? a vegetarian. Exactly. It's like, you right. know, having breakfast doesn't make you a Nazi, but there's a lot of that going on the dilution. You know, there's, but there's, I think there's a big, you know, to steal man, your point as well. There's a larger question here, which is what do you do when the white supremacists or the neo-Nazis see you as being on their side? Are you then culpable for that? Do you have a responsibility? By the way, I'm not people suggesting you are, because you can't control what people do with your work or what you, what you're writing or whatever. I mean, that's a problem. Anyone who's in the Republic of Letters, who writes or talks for a living, it's just you're never going to be able to control what some individual or groups of individuals do with your words. You know, just you can't. Right. And I think that that's a really important point. Although I will say that, you know, the question of incitement, right? Yeah. You know, 
It's a very important question because on the one hand, this is, you know, the whole basis of this country is freedom of expression, right? We don't really believe in incitement, but it is a a legal category. You can rise to the level of incitement. I would say rising to the level of incitement, you know, for example, was what happened when, when Trump called the coronavirus the China virus. Because what he did there was he suggested that people who are very identifiable in a certain way were coming to kill you or had contributed to a very real physical, biological threat. And I think that in that moment, people at the margins of society very much understood that you can you know, insult Asian Americans with impunity because the most powerful person in the world is doing it. And he's, you know, he's obviously I mean, getting I mean, I don't want to just it's to maybe to be the devil's advocate, would you say the same about Spanish flu or admit that there were other strains, Nile virus? I mean, you can come up there. There are lots of names like that. Now, you could say he was doing it to sort of gin up, you know, hatred. And lots of people have said that. And I, I'm not trying to defend Trump here. But there was an effort on the other side at the time to try to, you know, cover up the fact that there's probably likely that this came from an actual lab in China that the United States had funded and that calling it the China virus, at least maybe let's leave Trump out of it. Some people might have called it something like that simply to sort of remind it that, you know, the Chinese communist regime was responsible. I know we're a little off topic, but it was a sort of, you know, had bear some responsibility for this terrible pandemic. I think if he had called it the Chinese Communist Party's, you know, virus. Virus. Okay, fair enough. We we would not have seen like a skyrocketing in anti-Asian physical violent attacks. So I I think to me, the, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the impact that it's had, which is that, you know, people on the margins of society and mass, not like right. one shooter, but en mass took this as you can, you know, the president insulted these people and got away with it. These are the people we can attack with impunity. I think you see that a lot with attacks. Yeah. And I, and I see your point. And yeah. right. And if you, if you compare that to George W. Bush after 9-11, going out of his way to appear at a mosque and saying that there are plenty of Muslim Americans, there are citizens like us, yeah. there's a huge difference. And when you're the leader of a country, when you're the president of the United States, you have an obligation to tamp down these furies. By the way, and I don't I think, think Trump right. did that on purpose. I think he was yeah. doing exactly what you're saying. He was doing it for political reasons because he felt it was important. But it was, deep, to it was deeply, it's deeply irresponsible to be a leader in a time of crisis exactly. to scapegoat like that. And I think I see your point and I wasn't necessarily disagreeing with you. I just, I remember at the time being very focused on, well, you know, the Chinese, it did come from China. The government has some responsibility, but I do take your point there. But let's get back to, the Great Replacement Theory and Tucker Carlson. I mean, to to sort of push back a little bit, just try to try to make this as strong an argument as possible. You're correct that everything is like everything else, and to say that you know Hitler was a vegetarian and therefore vegetarians are Nazis is ridiculous. However, there is a sort of similar rhyme or structure to the way that mainstream some Republicans have started talking about this idea of a Great Replacement, which is that you know, there are people who are controlling this immigration crisis. We have, you know, at least 12 million or 11 million illegal immigrants in this country right now. And they're doing it for reasons that they're not, you know, sort of implying they're not entirely being honest with it. They're out to kind of get you. This is why, you know, there is an element there where they're not making it explicitly racial undertone, but it's kind of still 
playing on the same parts of our reptilian brain. Would you grant that? I would not grant that because okay. America is gorgeously diverse. Like our native population is not white. Like it's and there's just no it is it is the left critique that is imposing that white valence onto it, along with the white supremacists. It's not the mainstream Republicans and certainly not the working class. And I think that's where you really see the you know, where the rubber hits the road because working class blacks and working class Hispanics agree with working class whites about immigration, right? This issue is much more about class than it is about race. Okay. That's a very good point. Now I want to take it to something else here, which is let's take the, the sort of, let's call it respectable great replacement theory. It's still a goofy conspiracy, which is to say that it's possible. It's, I'm, I know it's true. I, Democrats have said the same to me that we think new Americans, we think immigrants will vote for us and they won't vote for Republicans. That's been an assumption. First of all, that's not necessarily even true. If definitely not that. true. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but more importantly, like there are lots of like, you know, fairly noble reasons why, you know, proponents of amnesty, for example, have their positions. For example, it's a humanitarian disaster. It's a nightmare to think that you're going to have the federal government rounding up 11, 12, 13 million people and deporting them out of the country. I mean, what is that going to look like? That's a that's a, a ghastly prospect that I think a lot of Americans for, for very, you know, for straightforward reasons would oppose. And there are other Americans like myself who think that immigration, for the most part, legal immigration is the engine that sort of drives American genius and ingenuity. And that we have this view that, you know, we are a beacon of freedom and that, you know, give us your tired, give us your poor. That is not the same as, you know, a cynical reason that I support open borders because I want Democrats to have a permanent majority. And that ascribing that kind of conspiracy, you know, it is a kind of conspiracy is is false. And it's and, and you know, it, it is it has a kind of conspiratorial odor, if you will. I agree with you that I don't think that is why the Democrats did a 180 on immigration. I have a much more cynical reason, which is they don't actually want them to become citizens. They want them to keep being their nannies and their gardeners and working in their restaurants and paying them less than minimum wage. So I think that they I my understanding from my Marxist class point of view is that actually the reason that the Democrats did this 180 on immigration, right? They used to be the side in favor of limiting immigration on, because they represented labor, right? And they you can't have a wage floor if you have a permanent, you know, a revolving door to other countries and, and their working class. You know, they now are the open borders party, essentially, for all effective purposes, right? Everybody voted, right. you know, rose their hand, raised their hand to say they would decriminalize illegal border crossing, crossing during the uh, primaries. So why did that happen? My understanding is that it's because the Democrats became the party of liberal coastal elites who rely very much on, you know, under the table, illegal labor in order to sustain their lifestyle. So I have a much, even more cynical reading, which is that it's totally economic and totally built on the idea that they will never make these people citizens. But I, I so I agree with you. I don't think that's the right explanation for why they made that 180. But I don't think it's crazy for the other side to sort of come, you know, have their own explanation for it, an explanation that appeals to their voters and that like is consistent with their worldview. Like, I just don't see anything in that that's so crazy. And I think that you see this a lot. Like the, the there was a huge article about Tucker Carlson in The New York Times. Recently. I saw that. Yes. 
And they had these two main findings, which is that Tucker talks incessantly about immigrants and the wages of the working class. And he talks, you know, incessantly about the ruling class. And they just devised from that that he was a racist because that's clearly a conspiracy theory that the ruling class is against, you know, workers and pro-immigrant. But I like to me, those are things that every Democrat would well, have I, 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 said. Yeah. I to, to give I, I didn't agree with the article and I thought it was tedious, but to give the authors, I think what they're saying is, is that he frames po- political, his political kind of issues, he frames his political rhetoric in terms of an us versus them. And let's get, and these are echoes of used to be, you know, what, what in historically authoritarian or fascist rhetoric. That's their argument. And, you know, Jay Stanley of Yale University makes this point about Trump and others. I'm inclined to say, well, okay, you can find some similarities there, but guess what? Like, you know, there, there isn't, uh, you know, a suicide bomber wing of the Tucker Carlson show or there aren't stormtroopers, you know, and so forth. So there's other elements that are missing when we think of the sort of fascist nightmare, but they are trying to, I think, talking about a style or uh, a sort of shape of narratives, which uh, but, but if, similar just, to right, these right. other things. Yeah. So, so, but if you look at the us versus them, that's operating on the left, yeah, right? They do it too. It's, yeah. it's, but it's so much worse. It's us versus they are all racists with machine guns who are coming to shoot up black churches. Every Republican is doing that. Every Republican supports right. that. That's the line on the left. Isn't that so much worse than saying the other side is trying to replace your vote with someone from a different country? Like that is so much more violent and vile to say about 50% of your fellow Americans. It's so vile and so dangerous mm-hmm. and so heightened. And, and they compare that to the us versus them that says the them is the rich elites who are robbing you blind, like a totally lefty position. Right. OK, well, I want to move. To, I want to move on. And we're still talking about this issue, but I want to talk about an element of this, which is why it's more than just a matter of political manners, which is to say it's not nice to accuse, you know, television hosts of being responsible for mass murder. Because if it was just that, I really wouldn't have done a show on it. Because this is part of a campaign to persuade and shame advertisers at Fox in particular and Tucker Carlson's show to withdraw their support so that he is taken off the air. And it is part of a, of a, of a trend among very online progressive activists with a lot of money, a lot of dark money, I might add, behind it, like Media Matters, where it's not enough to simply say, I don't like what these people are saying and they're wrong and here are the facts, but I don't think others should hear it because when people hear Tucker Carlson, they may turn into a sociopath who commits mass murder. And there I see, like, it's a danger to not just conservative speech. It's a danger really to all speech, because if we start applying that precedent, then we won't have any discourse left. Right. Yeah. I mean, you don't see anybody on Fox News calling for the shutting down of other people's shows. And that's because they don't have to, because they have more Democratic viewers than CNN and MSNBC combined. So they don't have to fear the influence of other shows. I, I suspect so you that think this is done. This, you think this is because they just want to eliminate the competition. 
I, I mean, I don't. So I again, I don't want to come off like too cynical. Like, I honestly believe that people who are saying these things right now are in deep pain. I am in deep pain over what happened. I, I, and I, I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt that they are, too, even as I think what they're doing is wrong, because I agree with you. It's a disaster for our democracy. But I think that what they are afraid of is not that people will watch Tucker Carlson and pick up a machine gun and kill a bunch of black people. I think what they're worried about is that people of color, working class people, Democrats, are going to watch Tucker Carlson and be like, my God, like the Democrats have really abandoned the working class, which they have. And they're going to turn to this show that has Tucker is the number one watched show among Democrats now on cable news. That I think that that is the thing that is most terrifying is not like that some person on the margins of society who's who has a homicidal gene to begin with and was mm. looking for an excuse to get it out is going to actually act on that. By the way, this guy hates the, the shooter from Buffalo, hates Fox News. He thinks that yeah. it's run by a bunch of Jews. Right. <laughs> like So he was not being influenced by that. But I think it's really about market share and about um, power and about influence. And I think that they're terrified. But I mean, for the first time in my life, the American people are getting more conservative because of left wing overreach. You know, after 50 years of the left winning culture war after culture war, civil rights battle after civil rights battle, the American people is turning back to conservative values. And I think because of left overreach, and I think that there's a real panic on the left about that, but also an inability to shift, an ability to start talking to Americans like normal people again. So to me, it is more about power than it is. But again, I, I just want to stress this again. Like, I really feel that a lot of people are are in pain and and that, that a lot that's where a lot of these errors are coming from today anyway <laughs> well that's it that you're that's a, that point taken but you don't think that this is also you know the accumulation now of 30 or 40 years of this kind of academic idea that speech is a kind of violence and that you know i i think it kind of cuts to the core of you know what it means to be a citizen and responsible for your actions, because the, the if you follow the logic, what you're hearing or what you're, you know, what, what, what the argument is, is that most people are too dumb to absorb certain ideas and they will pollute their minds, whether it's disinformation, whether it's hate speech, whatever it is. And by the way, I mean, like there's certain, I understand there's a difference between being able to post on a you know, social media site versus say what you want on a corner somewhere in public. But the uh, this sort of idea behind it is that Tucker Carlson's ideas are turning people into kind of, you know, dangerous, are making them dangerous in some ways. These ideas are need to be quarantined. These ideas need to be throttled. These ideas cannot, because if if people hear them, they are incapable of kind of interacting with the world like you know, like a, like an adult, like a, like a free person that they're, they're, they're at the whims of, you know, all these mm -hmm. influences. And that is something that a lot of people on the left really kind of don't even, they, they believe it and they don't even think about it. And I'm very worried about that because that seems like when you're talking about, like, we're trying to hold Tucker Carlson accountable and pressure all of these advertisers so he can be kicked off the air. You know, you're just saying, I, 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 I can't have, I can't have this person having this platform. You know, it's too dangerous. People might believe what he has to say. 
Yeah, because I think that what's what's hidden there is their own fantasy, right? That they yeah. have that kind of influence, right? Or they should have that kind of influence and their great dismay that the you know American people are not willing to just follow them blindly. I mean, you saw a lot of that with the attempts to cancel Joe Rogan. They were like, oh my God, people are going to listen to this and start taking ivermectin right. and not get vaccinated as though people just listen to him like zombies when the truth is they listen to him because he has different opinions. Like, they're not going to take his, his medical advice, which he knows, but they don't because they project their fantasy onto him that his audience is right. just following like sheep. I'll just say like, you know, Tucker is very dangerous. He has single-handedly made the Republican Party, forced the Republican Party to maintain the kind of economic populism that Trump started. You know, that he is very dangerous. He is in danger of taking Marxists who are on the left and making them think that there's a, a home for them in the Republicans. Of course, that's extremely dangerous to both parties, right? The thing is, is this though, you know, hate speech is nowhere near as dangerous as good ideas. And I, I can tell you from myself, I'm just going to say from myself, Right. Yeah. Like when I see anti-Semitic speech, hate speech online, I don't recoil in horror. I think, right. God, like, God, what a loser. Oh, gross. Ugh, people think this gross. When I see something that I know is dangerous, like, for example, Heather McDonald's work, which is mm. was when I first encountered that, I thought this is so dangerous. If she's right and I become convinced by this, I'm going to lose all my friends. Like like th that feeling of mm -hmm. like you can sense that there's something here and it's freaking terrifying because it will undermine everything you think you know about yourself. That is when people get hysterical and try to keep ideas out of the public sphere. Well, and there seems to be a lack of confidence, which is that if you think that Tucker Carlson is all wrong about immigration or whatever it is that you don't like. And by the way, I think I'm, I have plenty of things I think Tucker Carlson is all wrong about, including January 6th. But it's almost like you've lost confidence in your ability to persuade other people. Totally, totally. Yeah. And just the enormous amounts of contempt they have for the American people. You yeah. see it in everything, both in how they talk about him and in their that what's revealed about their fantasy that they should be able to tell people what to think. Yeah, this is this is really, really enlightening. So I have to ask you about you since I have you here. <laughs> are you one of these kind of like traditional progressive Marxist types who are in danger of maybe joining the popular side of the Republican Party. There are things I would want to see, but I, I, when I think about which party is more likely to start representing the working class from an economic point of view, mm -hmm. it seems to be more likely at this moment in time that the direction of the parties where they're going, that the Republican Party is, is probably headed more in that direction than the Democratic Party. I would want to see them take the lead on something like reparations. You know, I would want to see them you know, I I follow the black community. So if, you know, I would want to see them be able to convince sizable majorities of black Americans that they have their interests at heart. But I think that the Democrats have long ago abandoned that community. On, do you, do you really think, though, that like Tucker Carlson would ever get to anywhere close to being endorsing something like reparations? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know about Tucker. I don't, you know, Tucker's Tucker, right? Whatever. He can have his personal right. opinions. But I talk to Republicans all the time and they say to me, Tell us what what is the working class need? You know, I, I, I have them say, say to them, like, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you what I want you to do for them. I don't you know, like I can tell you what working class people tell me they need. But I think that, you know, there's just Trump had a huge impact. And that's the thing that bothers me the most about this, you know, ultra MAGA stuff, this attempt to like brand Trumpism without the Trump as though it's a bad thing. Like Trumpism without Trump is Bernie Sanders. 
You know, it's economic populism. It's just basically America first, which is something that Democrats used to understand. Democrats used to represent strong borders, anti-war tariffs, get rid of NAFTA, forget about trade, focus on jobs like this is 50 years ago. This is what the labor left sounded like. And now it's what the MAGA right sounds like. And because the Democrats don't believe in their ability to attract the working class because they're not offering them anything, they're catering to overeducated elites. You know, they are now they have to brand this as racism. They have to brand economic anxiety and economic populism as racism. And that's what you see over and over and over again. Yeah, but hold on, do you really think I mean, I understand that there's a part of Bernie Sanders's message that definitely tracks with MAGA, but I mean, Bernie Sanders is somebody who, you know, has adopted the language of yes, yes, yeah, yeah racial yeah. and trans totally, sensitivity, totally. gender, whatever, all of it. Totally. He says it all the time. Yeah. And it's almost like he, I don't, I don't see any daylight on the, some of those, what, what, uh, Barry Weiss, I, I know maybe she didn't coin this, but yeah, she has this, this, I learned it from her listening to her podcast, luxury beliefs. The idea that like yeah. coastal elites, progressives have these, th th they care so deeply about stuff that doesn't matter to 90% of the country. And, you know, they have the freedom and they have the, the wealth to care about these things. But it's almost like, but I just, I look at Bernie Sanders and I see him as like, well, he just sounds like every other progressive on this stuff. No, totally. I meant Bernie Sanders 20, circa 2015 when he said to Ezra Klein, open borders. That's a Koch brothers proposal, right? Like that. that for <laughs> Sanders. Global poverty. That's serious. It leads you to conclusions that in the U.S. are considered out of political bounds. Things like sharply raising the level of immigration we permit, even up to the up to a level of open borders, about sharply increasing open borders. Open no, that's, borders. A, that's a Koch brothers proposal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I hear you. Well, and and we and it's okay to sort of disagree. My project is to just get people to maybe have a little empathy for the other side, yeah, and respect the basic rules of our liberal democracy, and understand that just because I find something offensive or I disagree with it doesn't mean that I have to do everything I can to make sure that nobody else can hear that speech or no one can watch this movie or no one can listen to this song or whatever it is. That's where I'm coming from. So I'm kind of like in that small liberal camp, but I, I I don't think I am where you are when it comes to, <laughs> you know, trade and that stuff. Anyway, yeah, but it's okay. I'm, I'm 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 cheering on probably everything that you think is like the end of the Republican Party and the no, I'm not. I just you know, <laughs> that's the other part of it, Batya, yeah, and, and then we'll wrap this up. Is that I I'm just I can't you know like I I had my I said I said my I had my condolences for the Republican Party in like 2016. Right. And now we're living in a whole new world. And right. I think everybody, everybody should be disoriented in this new world. And, you know, we have to just understand that everything is changing. Amen, and brother. With that, Bacha, I want to thank <laughs> you so much for coming on the re-education. I think, I think this is, our, our listeners will really like this one. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.